Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Bike Karma, stories about people and bicycles. Whether it's riding, fixing, collecting, racing, buying, selling, hoarding, we cover it all. Today's episode includes the story of the Death Fork, an interview with the founder of the BCCo Bicycle Co-op, Tony Shirolis, and episode 1 of the Bicycle Necromancer series, bringing dead bicycles back to life. So whether you're in the car, on your trainer, or in the workshop, turn us on and listen to stories about bicycles. Too often bicycle enthusiasts get into different camps, and these little camps are really insular. So you've got like the mountain bike camp, the spandex clad road camp, the BMX and pixie tribes, the Schwinn and balloon tire cults, the rat rod clubs, all these different groups with all their different bikes, but some stories, and that's what this podcast is about because all of those already have their own podcast. This podcast is trying to take stories from all of those different worlds and put them together in one place because we have a lot in common. So let's listen to this story about the Death Fork. Wait a second, let me try that again. The story of the Death Fork. So no matter what kind of bikes you ride, or like, or collect, or whatever, it's always good to get a deal. Uh, we had an auction house in town, and they would have these good auctions on the inside, and before that they would have these not-so-great auctions on the outside, where the quality of the material was lower. And you could pick up some good deals there sometimes, and sometimes they had bicycles. So I'd cruise by earlier in the day and noticed that there was this green denelt 1960s three-speed there and it looked just cool it just looked really cool and uh, i was unable to make it back for the auction so i got back just at the end of the auction and there was a guy putting it onto his truck and i went over to him you know asked him how he liked it and stuff like that and it turned out he wasn't so attached to it he wanted to sell it we haggled a little bit i got for 60 dollars. he threw in this other bike that looked like generic painted over 10 speed bike as well and uh when i looked at this bike i thought to myself well the the one that i wanted was the green one it you know it had all kinds of logos and whatnot and had a three-speed grip shift from the 1960s. Not the modern type of grip shift, but the Sturmy Archer old three-speed type. And it said things like, on the on the top tube, it said, Ride a wheel in Sheffield steel. Yeah, the, bi the bike had a voice and it sounded like Sean Connery. It was that freaking cool. And it was just, it was cool as hell. So then I go to pick up this other bike, which looked like a garbage bike. It had been painted flat black to discourage the and I go to lift it up and it's like I literally heard like the sound like like 
So all these little details I start to notice about this bike, and I'm like, oh, I gotta figure out what's underneath this black paint. A lot of times, black paint is used uh, like duct tape in the cities to make a bike less appealing to people who might steal it. So this was an older bike, so probably at some point somebody forgot how special it was, if it was special, and did a horrible, horrible paint job on it. So a few days later, I'm stripping the paint off with some orange biodegradable paint stripper. It takes me forever, but I finally get it off without destroying the name tag, and I find out it's a Viscount. So I run upstairs and I go to check and see what a Viscount is. The first hit I got was from Sheldon Brown's website. If you've never been to Sheldon Brown, he was the authority on all things bike uh, for the internet, and he really has an awesome website. If you're interested in anything about bikes, you could just randomly pick an article on there and start learning something. He had a great sense of humor. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but his website lives on. And anyway, I go to look at it and I learn about them. And they were an aerospace company from England that basically tried to make a really, really lightweight but not too expensive bike so that they could undersell the rest of the competition going at the time. And they tried to make a quality bike, but they had to change a few things to get the price down. One of those things was to make a cast aluminum fork. So a cast aluminum fork was like a piece of aluminum that had been poured and uh, cast in a mold with a steel steering tube. And of course, when you put different types of metal together, there's a possibility that that's where they're going to crack off. So I read further, and it is known as the death fork bike. Yeah, the death fork bike. And so in big, bold letters, it says, Under no circumstances should a Lambert or Viscount be ridden with the original cast aluminum fork. I go on then to read that Yamaha bought them in 1978, and they recalled all the forks that they knew about and could contact people. And there were still some surviving forks. I've seen quite a few, um, meaning like five. They were really cool bikes. They were a piece of history. And so I started looking at this with a greater appreciation. The chain ring on this bike, for those of you who don't know, the chain ring is where the pedals are, was this piece of aluminum with holes drilled into it. It looked like it was out of a Miyazaki film. It was an amazing steampunky looking thing. And there it was on the bike. But unfortunately, the bottom bracket on these bikes was a press fit so that was one of the other weird things that they did so they had the cast aluminum fork which would you know break and, and possibly kill people and they had a pressed in bottom bracket which was kind of odd but they had the right intentions i'll say that they tried to provide a quality bike at a lower price point and there's a really cool advertisement everybody in the bike shop that i talked to who was working on bikes at the time remembers the girl with the the leather boots who was on the viscount and that was part of their lambert viscount advertising strategy Anyway, so I've got this thing, I strip it down as much as I can, and I start learning about the Death Fork bike. So now I got a conundrum. What am I going to do with the Death Fork bike? Obviously I can't ride it, because Sheldon Brown said not to. Do I take it apart and fix it? Well, apparently there was some problems with the bottom bracket. Uh, being really weird and hard to service. So 
now I'm like thinking, uh, I, I hate to try and change bikes. If it survived that long the way it is, it's, it's an artifact of a different time. And unless it's going to be totally thrown out, it should probably stay that way, I, I was thinking. But then on the other hand, I was like, well, it's no good to anybody if it's going to, you know, make somebody, you know, have an accident on the bike. So I had a lot of mixed feelings, thought about it for a while. And then I started getting up for this big trip to ride my bike uh, over in the UK. And I need to sell some bikes and make some money. So I decide that I am going to do the upright thing. I'm going to put, so I took a Sharpie paint marker and I wrote on the fork itself, this is a death fork, do not ride with this. You know, it's very clearly labeled. I took and I put some, uh, signs on the bike and I brought it to my local swap meet I figured it's it's a cool thing and just I almost just kept it for the chain ring I mean the chain ring is so beautiful by itself that you could just put it on your wall and have it be a piece of bicycle art that's that's how cool this chain ring was anyway I'm gonna get some cash for it but I'm gonna be upfront and tell people exactly what it is they're buying so I've got signs on it I go to the swap meet and a lot of interest in it. People are like, oh, that's a death fork. People who worked in bike shops back in the day are all reminiscing about it. And one guy comes over and he's really interested in it. He's intrigued. He loves the look of the bike. And I'm like, you can put a different fork on it. The bottom bracket's not in trouble right now, but it is a different one, blah, blah, blah. We're talking, we're talking, we're talking. He's interested in it. I think I'm going to get my money back for, you know, I think we struck up like 60 was what we agreed that I was going to sell it for. And I, you know, made sure that he was aware of everything like that. He needed to sell some stuff at his booth first, so he didn't come over for a bit. And then later, I'm starting to pack up, getting ready to go home, and I'm like, I gotta be leaving if you want this bike. He runs to the ATM, grabs some money. I think I let him have it for a little bit less. I go, okay, uh, so here you go, and here's all the paperwork about the death fork. And he goes, what now? And I go, you remember how we talked before about the, the death fork and how it's all labeled and written all over the, the fork. He's right there. He's like, huh? And I'm like, the, the, the fork is a, is a recalled fork. You know, we'd been talking about this. And he's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that before. So I'm like, we, we talked about it before. And anyway, so we, we, kind of went on like that for a couple minutes and I was like well do you do you still want it and he's like well, well yeah I'm like, but you, you realize it's the the death fork the the death fork you don't want to ride with that fork right he's like mm, yeah so I, I gave him an extra five dollars back because I felt bad that he really I mean I looked in his eyes he wasn't he wasn't playing me he he did not remember the conversation that we had and good guy too I don't, I don't know what bad day or something but um so anyway I made sure that as he left he knew about it and later I s think I saw him selling it on Craigslist and I believe he was doing the right thing as well, too.
do I regret selling the death fort bike a little bit um, that the chain ring is just a beautiful thing I think I'm gonna post it on my website because that's that's how cool the, the death fork chain ring is it's a cool bike there's a fun story for me is holding a piece of history I mean everybody who was alive during the 70s remembers that Pinot's blew up this is the equivalent story for the bicycle world. So, beware the death fork, young, young ones. Yeah. If you find a bike, and it's mysteriously light, and it says Viscount or Lambert, perhaps you have a surviving death fork bike. When you think about the history of the United States, so many things started on the East Coast and spread to the West Coast. It's not the case with bike culture. When you look at towns like Minneapolis, Portland, Seattle, until recently, they've made Connecticut look like we're in the Stone Ages. We're just starting to pull out of it. And one of those changes has been the emergence of a bike co-op in Hartford. Named after the Spanish slang word for bicycle, BC Co. is Hartford's first bicycle co-op. It's run as a program through the Center for Latino Progress. Tony Chirolis is in charge, and we caught up with him early in January of 2016 to see what it's all about. So I'm here with Tony Chirolis, who is the current youth program coordinator and the manager of BCCO in Hartford, Connecticut, which is wicked exciting for me. A few years ago, I saw a co-op program down in Maryland. And I thought to myself, someday that would be my dream, is to have a bike co-op like that and put it on the back burner, full-time job, blah, blah, blah. This man goes ahead and does it. So welcome. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. So how did this get started? Was this, was this your dream? I had a full-time job as an engineer, Pratt & Whitney. I volunteered with a a bike cooperative, cooperative teaching bike shop before when I lived in Champaign-Urbana. I was still working at Pratt & Whitney, even though I was remote. I put that in the back of my head and said, well, that'd be a neat thing to do in Hartford when I moved back to Hartford. Just kind of like threw it in the back of my head and didn't really expect to do it. In 2015, I was getting a bit burned out at my engineering job. I interviewed with the Center for Latino Progress for a little part-time after-work evening sort of job that they had posted, and they instead of that, they offered me the youth program coordinator job, uh, which I was marginally qualified for. So I took that job, and I quit Pratt. Uh, it was a rather rash decision, but I felt my soul dying uh, and decided something important needed to, needed to happen. So I took that job doing college prep work. They have a summer program at the, at the center that I was aware of, and that, that summer youth employment program, uh, they need a service learning project for 30, 14, 15-year-old youth. The center's executive director said, you want to do something with bikes? You're a league cycling instructor. That's something you do. Do you, do you think we could put them in a direction with bikes uh, for this service learning project? And I said, yeah, that's a great. And then, the, and then that little like thing I'd put in the back of my head floated up to the front. I said, what do you think about this? Uh, and I mentioned the, the framework uh, of a 
cooperative type bike shop and and that that program could fit into this and that Hartford had lost its last bike shop in 2014 when Pascar retired and we talked about it a bit it seemed like a great idea and it was a perfect fit for the, the a space downstairs in the same building that was underutilized and we ran with it so I put in an order for all the tools we set up the shop in a week so Chris Brown came in as a, a local awesome guy that repairs bikes and sells some cargo bikes and he ran the first two days he's also a league cycling instructor so he he actually ran the first two days of this you know virgin program so that's how it began that's how we got the space set up and started uh started with a five-week summer youth employment program uh, where the kids were fixing up bikes in the shop learning about bike repair So the, the Center for Latino Progress is in the Sama building, which is 95 Park Street. The shop is in a first floor storefront, which you'll see in cities where there's mixed use buildings, where there's retail and storefronts on the first floor and then the offices and sometimes housing above that. So the Center for Latino Progress is in the second floor, 95 Park Street. The Bicico is in 97 Park Street, which is the little storefront. Those two rooms we've got set up with work stands, uh, storage shelves, work benches, large rolling toolbox with shadow box tools that are individually labeled, uh, and some tool boards. More bikes than we can fit in the space. So I've got a bunch like tucked away in a garage and storage just right next door. We've had some great you know, mechanics nights and do-it-yourself repair nights where we've got all the stands loaded up and you know people working with mentors or some people working independently so my target for the for the podcast is bring all different groups of bikers together and, and this program seems like potentially you're bringing people from the suburbs into Hartford, you're helping people in the community with their bikes, you're basically creating a, a, a meet and greet place where all these worlds can get together and just enjoy bicycles. So far that's the beautiful mix that we've been able to concoct downstairs in the space because I have my I have my hands in both you know all of those different camps from the uh, spandex racer crowd which I, I actually started as so even though I might you know denigrate and make fun of uh, our, our spandex racer friends. I, I was one for like 10 years. Uh, I was a triathlete and spent way too much money on bikes and totally dorked out about how many calories I was eating and carbon and grams. You know, how many, know a bunch of those folks. Uh, I still, you know, will occasionally get on a fast bike and ride with them. I've been living in Hartford since 2012. I have a bunch of Hartford network commuters. And I, we live in and are in a neighborhood where people use bicycles very much for, you know, A to B transportation without any of the, you know, sexy thoughts about their bicycle. They're just how I get to work. You know, whether you're commuting in the mornings, whether you have to ride a bike or not, every once in a while there's that moment where you look up and it feels like you're flying down the street. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think all of the people using the bicycle... Uh, for whatever reason they're using it or in, enjoying that moment. So, we're bringing them all together, they can connect, you know, with that common thread. And I, that's the really neat part. I mean, training youth or training adults to be bike mechanics is, is not the road to riches. Uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's an extremely underpaid 
profession because people do it because they love it, so they pay you crap. Uh, sorry if your podcast no, has no, no, uh, that's fine. issues with me using language. I'll stay out of the big ones. Yeah. Um, you know, the way you get employment and the way that you climb the ladder and, and get ahead in life is connections. And unless we start mixing uh, different groups of people, some groups will just never have those connections. And, it, and it's a genuine way to, to mix people. It's not fake. It's it's yeah, it's, it's like you, you get a kid who loves riding their bike and you get an adult who loves riding their bike together. They've instantly got something to talk about that's that's very uh, honest. Absolutely. Know? And they, they they you know, we're not holding, you know, uh, speed dating mixers downstairs. But that's a lot of, you know, what's happening professionally uh, between different groups of people. And... And that, that's my vision for this space is just, you know, using that common thread as a teaching tool and as a, as a connector socially and professionally for people. All right, so Tony, you're the real deal. I mean, I donated bikes before and stuff like that. I called you up the first, one of the first times that we met. You, we met down at uh, the swap meet that I run down in Old Weathersfield. But when I said I got some bikes to donate, you didn't show up in a truck, you didn't show up in a car, you showed up in a bike with a trailer. You yes. Know, which, <laughs> which was amazing. And you strapped like three or four frames onto the back of your trailer and took off down the hill. Which, that was, which was pretty damn brave. That was sporty. That was sporty. Yeah. Uh, the the downhill was was nice. I was glad that I didn't have four bikes on the trailer going up that hill. I would have had some. Yeah, I would have blown an O ring. But so, do you provide that service for people all the way out as far as Vernon? If they want to donate a bike, you would go out there. No, to, no, no, not at okay. all. Okay. All right. All. So um, there's there's a couple people who would be listening to this. One would be the person who wants to start a bike co-op you know they have that dream in the back of their head like so mm -hmm. many of us and then there'd be the other person who's like how do i get involved with this thing because it really is i believe there's one in new london yep and have you had any contact with those guys no but we, we keep an eye on things on the internet okay yeah. that's really down in the southeast region of the state but up mm -hmm. here in the center of the state there's really nothing else like this except for you guys so if you're near the center of the state and want to be involved with this you know, what, what are you looking for from people? Perfect question. Perfect question. Um, for, I'll start with the, the, the first one is you, you've got this idea that you'd like to do a, a bike cooperative space. And I think that's a great idea, but it's, it, it can be extremely easy, small and organic where you just have an informal like garage space and you and your friends and some other people you invite come in to work on stuff. And that is the easiest to support uh, and it won't make you money, uh, but that's okay if you still wanna do the social aspect of it. The thing that we're doing downstairs, the reason it stayed in the back of my head was you have to have all these things come together to make it actually function, including the bookkeeping, the space, the programming, the grant funding. Now the grant funding is extremely important for this Hartford venture because you, you're, you'll, if you do sell things, you're going to be selling used bikes and the margins are tiny. And the amount of time put into those used bikes is way more than you'd put into a new bike. So your, your, your mechanics time is high and your margins are low. So, you're, yeah, so as, you're, as you're redoing used bikes that you find 
kick to the curb and stuff like that and you're making it into a rideable machine, those good feelings that you get by recycling it are basically what you're getting paid with for the most part because it, yes, when it, you go it, to sell those, there's not, there's not it, any it's, margin it's, on it. It's sustainable and, and it feels good that feels you're not good. wasting these bikes. Um, and some of the bikes you get donated are very nice uh, and those don't necessarily take that much work, but they do take as much work as putting together a bike out of the box. Uh, or more. Uh, so the bike cooperative in, in this area uh, where we don't have bikeflation like Portland is not a lucrative venture so you need to have all in addition to you know offsetting some of your expenses from selling bikes you have to have the grant funding and program funding like summer youth employment and earn a bike that we are doing here. It's not an easy thing necessarily to go do the full up bike cooperative uh, or a bike shop. You can ask any bike shop owner uh, there, you know, it's not extreme. It's not a lucrative deal. So you're not in competition with any bike shops. You're basically just no, trying to fill the local niche here. We're and... filling the Hartford niche um, very much so, and then we want to, you know, improve cycling culture and and the cycling infrastructure in Hartford, such that everybody, including our suburban neighbors, with the with our local bike shop friends benefits you know that our mode share goes up and there's more people empowered and riding bicycles so that that's good for them and us so we, we actually have support from the local bike shops where they're donating stuff to us uh, uh, helping us out with so they see the big picture too yeah they, they see the increase in mode share is a big deal and having Hartford Metro the, the, as a hub with good you know cross city bike routes as, as a good thing so so that supports there to the second part of your of your question, like how can people help? At this point, I, I've I've learned and I had a suspicion that we would be uh, flush with bicycles. Uh, so the the first thing people want to do is donate bicycles and bike parts. Like let, let's go, every bike nerd has a basement full of parts, and 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 they're you know they pulled them off for a reason because they couldn't use them. They are, they're thinking, I could use this someday. And then the, the big pile builds in their basement. Uh, or they throw that bike that they don't use anymore against the wall um, because they got another one or something was wrong with it. And they're like, oh, somebody can use this bike. Um, and somebody may be able to use that bike, but we are gonna be flush with bikes. The best thing isn't necessarily to come donate a bike or, or your random parts bin full of things that are hard to match up with something else. Yeah, so for the listener at home, I showed up with some really nice handlebars with a couple breaks that I had, but yeah, I, I get his point. Uh, the, the best thing that we can use is volunteer time, uh, so come on down, help make those connections, help do some Skillshare, so somebody ought to change a tire. You know, come in once a week or once a month or once every two months and come into the shop. Spend some time here, uh, you know, patching tubes, standing at the door saying hello, welcoming folks to the shop. So people without any experience can come do and be trained on doing some of the more menial tasks and get to be proficient at it. And then those who have more mechanical ability can jump right in and, yep. and do some other Pre stuff. Pretty quickly, you'll you'll you know you can shadow somebody that's doing something else uh, and start picking up those skills. Uh, which are good for your own independence and, and working on bikes uh, and feeling confident when you're out on the ride. And you can share that when somebody comes in. Uh, and some of it's extremely non-technical, just saying hello at the door and getting somebody signed in, getting them to sign a waiver uh, or check in as a member. So, th so that sort of stuff is, is 
more useful for the for the space and it actually helps build those connections like coming in and dropping off a bike you've never met the people in the shop it makes you feel good but you're not actually furthering the, the larger the larger project and the social connection i mean we both have had had that home bike shop where we've had tons of bike parts at home mm -hmm. and we've We've donated, we've fixed up bikes, you know, just sometimes you give a bike and you just gotta let it go. You gotta be very zen about it and you gotta be like, I'm gonna give, I spent 10 hours on this bike and I'm gonna give it to a kid who yeah. may or may not end up appreciating it or not. And you just gotta, you gotta get okay with that. But you've done the next step, which so many programs have found successful is they earn a bike. Yep. So by investing a lot more emotion into it, the kid is going to probably appreciate having built a bike. You want to talk a little bit more about that? And they, they buy either fixing up a bike that then gets donated in the community or just spending that time learning the skills to repair a bicycle, they, they're that much more likely to use that bike well mm -hmm. uh, and not get a flat tire and leave it on the side of the road. Uh, it's going to get a flat tire, they've got a patch kit. It's going to get, uh, the wheel's going to get out of true and they can come back in and true the wheel. So the earn a bike program gives them the skills and the connection to the bicycle that both allows them to use it safely and have the, the uh, knowledge to, to fix you know, minor mechanical issues. The earn a bike really does a great job of that. So thanks very much to Tony for his time. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Bicico, you can look them up on Facebook. It's B-I-C-I-Co. Uh, you can go visit them at 95 to 97 Park Street in Hartford, or you can give them a call at 860-247-3227. So many opportunities there. Ask Tony about potential donations, uh, volunteer opportunities, if you know somebody who would benefit from the program and getting them involved, other organizations. Um, if you would like to become a member of the co-op and have access to their wonderful tool shop uh, where you can bring your own bike to work on it, uh, this is a great place and I'm so happy that Hartford finally has one. So check them out. And now... An episode of Bicycle Necromancer? Look, a body on the side of the road. What? Somebody just threw an old bike there. Rusted flat tires. Chain arching rigidly as if through rigor mortis. To you, Igor, might appear to be junk. But to me, well, I see potential is what I see. Where once was a vibrant creature on which Look, it's obviously been discarded by whoever put it out to the side of the road. Grab it and throw it into the truck. Fine. I have plans for this one. I bet you do. Oh, great bicycle necromancer. How do you bring forth a bike that has been discarded into usable and rideable safe condition again? 
Before I can share with you the secrets of the dark art of bicycle necromancy, I must assume a disguise of a suburban man who has a hobby of bike fixing. He has the power to see a dead bike and bring it back to life. I'll be right back. Hey, Igor. Uh, it's Master, me. you look so normal. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, uh, it's a little dramatic. Can you handle it? Uh, okay. So um, when we find a bike on the side of the road, the thing that we got to do is to first figure out why it's been thrown out. Now, sometimes it really is just silly, silly reasons. Like some people will throw out a bike. They'll throw it out because it got a flat tire. I've seen bikes thrown out because they just had flat tires. But a flat tire is such an easy repair. A rusty chain is another big one. Um, a brake that squeals. A wheel that's slightly wobbly. Um, these are all little things that can be fixed, as you and I both know. But if there is a good reason why the bike was discarded, uh, such as a cracked frame, a damaged fork, something that could actually be a safety hazard, you have to look out for those things as best you can. And when in doubt, throw it out. You just don't want to put somebody onto a bike that you think might be unsafe. So that's that's it basically in a nutshell is to do that and then you, you just repair the bike. The secret is, Igor, they're not actually alive. No, you lie. They're, they're just really cool machines. And the living part is the person on them. You see, so that part is the easiest part because you just you just put a new person on there and they and they ride it along. I don't even know who I am anymore. Oh, oh, okay. So you want me to actually tell you things about bicycle necromancy? Uh, well, maybe mm. I'll just I know. I'll just start up a podcast and we'll have a segment on there called Bicycle Necromancy. And week after week, we'll go over one or two things about how to fix up a bicycle, uh, whether it's sitting in your garage, you picked it up at a yard sale, maybe on the side of the road, something like that. How's that sound, Igor? I don't know. Is that I good? feel numb. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. And thus was born episode one of Bicycle Necromancer Tips. So of all the good tools that a bicycle necromancer has, one of the best ones is a wire wheel. And a wire wheel is a brass, not steel, a brass fine wire wheel mounted to a bench grinder. And it's potentially fairly dangerous. So here I have a very rusty old Schwinn approved five speed freewheel. Okay, and it looks pretty bad. I'm going to turn on the bench grinder. Proper safety equipment on. So not only will debris fly off of this, but also little bits of the wire wheel will, hurt, will fall off as well. And then the part that I use to polish it up is shiny and new. So as long as the rust doesn't get too pitted, you can take off a lot of rusty problems. And even where the rust is pitted, you can build up, you can take up a lot of the build off. You do need to be careful about some finishes, uh, especially alloys and aluminum. Uh, anodized surfaces are not good for this. 
took off at least 30 years worth of rust there from the back of that freewheel. Now, it's obviously dangerous. If you get your clothing stuck on it, if you let it touch your fingers, it's going to hurt, potentially uh, really hurt. So this is something not to be done uh, by children or by people who aren't sure of what they're doing, but it is a really good tool for removing rust and corrosion from things. Let's say that that's a little bit too scary for you. Well, you could take a drill press like this one, and you could put a wire wheel into that as well. It might go a little bit slower for you, but still, there's always the danger of having it, you know, catch your skin or catch your clothes or catch your hair, depending on how long your hair is. Or even just flipping like that uh, might, might hurt you, it might whack you. But right now it's just eating the rust away from the piece that I'm working on. If I then polish it or put some lubricant onto it that is, that is rust retarding, I will um, help to keep that part shiny and new for longer. Let's say that you're still even scared of that. Let's go back into the other side of the shop and we will use a simple looks like a wooden toothbrush and this has got brass bristles on it as well so basically just like a toothbrush brush off your part it takes a little bit longer I would recommend using a little drop of lubrication as you're doing it it might help a little bit or to use some semi-chrome polish or some chrome polish and that will work too and not as effective with uh, hardcore corrosion and rust but it's it's a lot safer and of course you want to use the dust mask if you're using that so removing rust is one of the big jobs of being a bicycle necromancer because that is the thing that makes a bike look crappy and sometimes makes it perform crappy and it eventually, if untreated, will, you know, maybe over years, maybe over decades, will make that part not work anymore, you know, depending on what part the rust is on. There you go, your first necromancer tool is brass brushes. Whatever level you feel comfortable with, at your own risk. Well, that's it for this episode of Bike Karma. I'd like to give a special thank you to Tony Shirolis at BC Co., to Mobjack at mobjackmusic.com, and Keller Glass for letting us have our opening theme song from them, and also my son Taryn Brown, who's performing our closing song. Check us out on Bike Karma at Facebook, Bike Karma on iTunes, and Bike Karma on Podbeam. Contact me if you'd like to be on the show. Till then, keep it wheel.